Good afternoon, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Carla Hayden, and I'm so happy to see all of you here today. We really want to welcome you to a special edition of our Brown Lecture Series. This series is made possible by a very, very generous gift from the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Family Foundation. And the generosity of the Brown family to the Pratt family is really immeasurable. Because of their gift, this lecture series has hosted many best-selling and award-winning authors through the years. Today, we have another great author to bring to you. And I'm very pleased to say that Mr. Walker is from Chicago, like me. And I know you're um, eager to hear him discuss his book, Street Shadows. Uh, we are very honored to have um, a person who has a long and distinguished career in publishing. And he's here to introduce our special guest. He's currently a literary agent who actually helped promote um, our guests, I was going to say discover, but you'll tell that story. Um, but he um, moved here uh, several years ago to be with family, but he's really adopted the Baltimore area and the Baltimore literary scene, and he's even adopted me, and I just really appreciate that, Mr. Gerald Gross. Thank you, Carla, for the introduction. This, is, this occasion is one where I've, I'm meeting the author, uh, although we met last night for the first time, but I'm meeting him as you are. Um, uh, Gerald Walker is... Uh, an associate professor at Bridgewater State College, which is just outside of Boston. Uh, and he is uh, teaching English lit there and creative writing. Uh, his work has appeared in the Best American Essays, uh, published by Houghton Mifflin, uh, the volume of 2007 and 2009, and the Best African American Essays of 2009. And... Uh, uh, he's also contributed to Mother Jones and recently to an anthology, um, uh, a collection of, of the work of many prominent writers, uh, all who've had brothers. And so the title of the book is Brothers, um, uh, Stories of Love and uh, Rivalry. Uh, he, is, he and his wife live in Bridgewater and they have two sons. Um, my daughter this morning just happened to send me an email, and it was an email of uh, uh, the TED YouTubes, which some of you may be familiar with, and it was a, a replay of uh, the uh, uh, acceptance speech that Steve Jobs made at Stanford University uh, when he was re received an honorary degree in 2005. And uh, it just was released by Stanford in December of last year. It's a very interesting speech, and he makes one point. When we talk about connecting the dots, we cannot connect the dots of the future, but we can connect the dots of the past. And I just want to touch on those dots for a moment, because for me, it was the fall of, of 45. I was just coming out of the service, and I got my first job in publishing at a firm that most of you haven't heard of called Raynal and Hitchcock, but they had many prominent authors, such as Sandy Zupri, who published Little Prince, and Mary Poppins, and a great novel by Malcolm Lowry called Under the Volcano. And they also had under contract a new writer whose work had appeared in some magazines, and he was contracted to do a novel. 
and the novel was due just about the time I arrived. It eventually got published by Random House in 1952. Uh, the editor of that book, who also hired me at 50 bucks a week, uh, over the years became my closest friend. And since he was the editor of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, um, he and I and Ralph over the years became good friends with our wives often going off to dinner together and so on. So um, there's been some new interest in Ellison, of course, because uh, scholars have been uh, resurrecting some of his unpublished work ever since Juneteenth was published a few years back. And uh, um, now we've got a, a, a volume of over 1,000 pages uh, entitled Three Days Before the Shooting, all of which I, am, I expect that Ralph wouldn't have been terribly pleased with. He was a perfectionist and very careful when he sent out his work to the public. But back at the time of Juneteenth, Juneteenth um, uh, Michael Pakenham, who used to write for The Sun when The Sun had a much better book page, he wrote of the Invisible Man as a classic act of truth. It is impossible to be a responsibly sentient American or seriously to hope to understand America without having read and thought about this book. The first, the first four sentences constitute one of those rare passages in prose or poetry that cry out to be memorized. And I quote them. I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Back in October of 7, to connect the dots, I happened to look at the Wall Street Journal one day, and I noticed an article with the headline, Black Professor Rebels Against Expected Campus Role. I read the piece. It looked very interesting. It featured an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education. That was what it was all about. This professor had published an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is the journal of record of the academic community. And the response to that article by the Chronicle from its readers was one of the highest responses it had ever received, both pro and con about the piece. Well, that got my publishing juices flowing, so I called up my son's secretary, because his office gets the Chronicle, I knew that, and she sent me up that issue. I read it, saw where the writer was located, and that's how I happened to then get in touch with Gerald Walker. And what particularly struck me at the time, and I really flipped when I saw this, was the fact that his piece that he had written for the Chronicle that caused all this stir was titled Visible Man. So that's all the connection of the dots for me that brings us Gerald Walker today.
Thank you, Jerry Gross. Um, let me connect a few more dots. The final sentence of Ellison's book is, who knows but that on the lower frequencies I speak for you. And with that final sentence, Ralph Ellison was attempting to say that although this book is about me and my particular life, it should resonate with every human being because it's really about a search for identity. And I'd like to think that my book also is about a search for identity. Um, and I think we can use the word discover because Jerry Gross did discover me. He contacted me, asked if I had an agent. I said, sort of, which means I had one who wasn't working for me very hard. And so um, he took over the job, and that's why I'm here today. So thank you, Jerry Gross. Thank you to the Brown family for inviting me. And uh, I'm going to read a bit. Uh, two pieces from the book, starting with the prologue, and then I'll read the first chapter. The first piece is the prologue, and it's called Gods. When my twin brother and I were born in 1964, there were eight years left to live. Our apartment was already stockpiled with food, though it is still unclear to me for what purpose, since, according to the church to which we belonged, all followers of our faith would become gods at the sound of Gabriel's horn. That would also be the moment my parents would regain their eyesight, allowing them to see their six children for the first time. This alone, it seemed to me, would have been reason enough to die. In 1968, four years before we were to receive our salvation, Martin Luther King Jr. received his. We lived on Chicago's west side then. I remember sitting with my family in the living room after word spread of his assassination, watching our neighborhood burn on the evening news. The volume was on mute while my older sister Mary described the madness to our parents. When she spoke of the police's use of water hoses and how they fired guns into the rioting crowds, my father shook his head and said that Jesus couldn't return too soon. And then in 1970, with the world's end so near and the prime rate so low, my parents decided that if they were ever going to own a home, they'd better do it now. They put an offer on a four-bedroom bungalow on the south side, right in the heart of a middle-class white community, without fear of protest or assault, as if we were gods already. My parents' decision to move among white people did not sit well with some of our relatives, especially Aunt Bernice. She cleaned whites' homes for a living and spoke frequently of their lack of hygiene, the fact that they didn't use soap, for instance, and that they soiled their sheets and ate food right off the floor. This was to be expected, Aunt Bernice insisted, from a people who had enslaved our ancestors and still enslaved us now. Just look at the awful schools in our communities and the drugs and crime. Look at how they kill off our leaders like they killed off King. And you want to go live with these folks? She asked, shaking her head. Don't be surprised if you wake some morning to a cross burning in your front yard. But because the prophet said there soon would be crosses burning in everyone's front yard, my parents did not add this to their list of concerns, not until January 1st, 1972 had come and gone, and the world was still here, they were still blind, we were still mortals, and there was a basement full of baked beans and creamed corn. And on top of that, there was a mortgage to be paid that they could barely afford. The last thing they needed was a cross burning. Every once in a while, they had us look outside to make sure none was there. And one morning, instead of a burning cross, we found a seven-year-old white boy named Ryan. 
He wanted to know if my twin brother Jimmy and I could come out to play. We weren't supposed to socialize with people not of our faith, so Jimmy and I were surprised when my father said we could go. We followed Ryan across the street and into his backyard, where later that summer Jimmy broke both of his arms, though the cause was not racial violence, as Aunt Bernice first suspected, or calcium deficiency, as my parents first suspected. Ryan introduced us to several other white kids in the neighborhood, and within a short period of time, I had tangible evidence that some of the things Aunt Bernice said about whites weren't true. I had seen soap in their houses. I had seen them eat from bowls and plates, and I had been enslaved only once for a mere 10 minutes due to Ryan's gimpy bathroom door. A few years later, he was gone. The other kids were as well, their parents' experiment with integration at its end. Perhaps if they had remained, the roots of my aunt's racist narrative would not have taken hold in my subconscious, a narrative that would find ample nourishment from the blacks who moved into the community and hated white people as much as she did. Soon it would be hard to remember that Ryan and the other kids had been nice to us and that they had not pushed Jimmy off the swings and broken his arms, as he sometimes said. The only opposing narrative, as I recall, was from Tommy, my oldest brother who, at 13, was laying roots of his own to support his future conserv- excuse me, conservative views. Tommy never spoke against whites. He never complained of racism. He talked only of self-reliance and self-help. So we hated him too. But the majority of my negative energy in those days was reserved for our church. I hated how different it made me feel from the other kids. I hated, for example, that we worshiped on Saturday instead of Sunday. We couldn't celebrate Christmas or birthdays. We couldn't dress up for Halloween or go trick-or-treating. Easter was also off-limits. Most of all, I hated how joyfully our members spoke of the coming Armageddon, as if it were no more than the circus. They could have their eternal life in communion with God. I wanted clowns. Chapter 1, A Place Like This The winos were already there, four middle-aged men wrapped in the coats of giants. I took my place among them. I removed my cigarettes from my pants pocket and distributed them to the fingers trembling toward me. We smoked in silence while responsible people hurried past, heading toward the elevated train station or to the stores that lined the strip of 35th Street. It was my day off from responsibility, I had decided. I'd called in sick to my unit clerk job at the medical center. I wasn't sure I'd return. I wasn't sure of much of anything, only that I was out of coke and it was important to be drunk until I got some more. The wino's radar clicked in and they moved toward the door seconds before it opened. The proprietor stepped back as we entered, saying good morning to some of us by name. He went behind the counter where three other men stood praising Michael Jordan's antics they'd seen on TV. All of the wino's headed in that direction. They wanted wild Irish rose and mad dog, kept on the glass shelves above the register. But I had scrounged enough money for something better. Minutes later, I emerged from the store with a pint of cognac and a 40-ounce of old English 800. A boy who couldn't have been more than 14 joined me. He asked me to help him buy some liquor. I told him no. I told him he should be in school. He laughed and said I should be in school. Years later, I would think back to that incident and wonder if the boy even existed, if he were merely my subconscious urging me toward the path of salvation. But I couldn't comprehend that then, had no way to recognize 
any latent desire to be saved. All I knew was that at 21 my life was a mess and couldn't get any worse. But things can always get worse. Sometime later that day I woke on my couch to a ringing phone. It was my friend Greg bearing good news. He'd started working at a dope house near 47th and King Drive and asked if I wanted credit. I told him I'd be there as soon as I found a ride. I called my ex-girlfriend, Pam. Fool, she hissed. Do you know what the hell time it is? I didn't, but she told me. It was close to midnight. I promised I'd get her high. Give her 30 minutes, she responded, maybe a bit longer because of the storm. I moved close to my window and saw that it was snowing, a full-scale blizzard, in fact, weightless flakes swirling in all directions. While I waited, I straightened up a bit, stuffing empty liquor bottles and canned goods into a large garbage bag. For the first time in two days, I showered and brushed my teeth. I still had a little of the cognac left, but I was out of beer and decided we'd stop and get some more. The dope house was only a few miles away. Ten minutes after picking me up, Pam double-parked on a side street and let me out. Six inches of powder had blanketed the abandoned lot I trudged through, transforming the debris into something beautiful. When I reached the alley, I made a left and headed for the back stairs of a three-story brownstone. I was on the landing when from behind me, a man's voice ordered me to stop. Seconds later, a hand rummaged through my coat pockets while another struggled to steady a gun. It vibrated against my temple. Where's the money? The man demanded. I, I, I don't have any. Don't bullshit me. I told the robber I wasn't bullshitting him, that I was there only to see a friend. He pulled four envelopes from my back pocket, the mail I had grabbed before leaving my apartment lobby. He stuffed them inside his coat and backed away. I turned to leave. No, no. He motioned the gun up the stairs. Go where you were going. I went to the third floor. At apartment six, I slipped a hand through the burglar bars to knock on the door. It opened before I touched it, just wide enough for me to see a sliver of Greg's dark brown face and his signature tan beret. Hey, guess what? I was just robbed. What? Yeah, right downstairs. We both laughed and shook our heads. <sighs> Man, you're the second one today, he responded, handing me the gram of coke between the rusted wrought iron. For my inconvenience, he gave me another one at half price. I promised I'd pay him in two days. Back at the car, I told Pam about the gunman. He didn't get the coke, did he? She asked. No, I told her. He robbed me as I was going up the stairs. He was gunned when I came down. You are a lucky motherfucker, she said. Because I'd have killed you for having me come out here for nothing. She knew what mattered. Let's get some beer, I suggested. Thirty minutes later, we were back at my apartment, and sometimes I imagined that as the first line of coke entered my body, the first bullet entered Greg's. I see our heads tilting back simultaneously, mine coming to a rest on my vinyl couch, Greg's on the snow-covered tenement stairs. I reach for Pam to rub her thigh as the gunman reaches for Greg to search his pockets. Pam rises and moves toward the bathroom, pausing to wink at me, and the gunman rises to run into the shadows, pausing to shoot Greg five more times. Greg is found with a thirty-two in his hand, unused, and Pam finds me with a can of beer in mine, unopened. Greg is dead. Pam is naked. 
I believe myself to be a lucky man. I know I am a minute later when I hear the news. My older brother Tim called to deliver it. He'd arrived on the scene shortly after me in search of free dope too, but instead found a crowd of nighthawks contemplating a corpse, everyone hoping, no doubt, that it wasn't someone they knew. At first no one could tell. Part of his face was missing. But a tan beret was there. Maybe, I stammered, maybe somebody else had the same beret. No, no, it's his. He's dead. I denied it. Tim insisted, and I denied it some more until I did so in quivers, then whispers, and when I fell silent, he said he had to go. I set the phone back on the receiver. Pam tried to comfort me, her hand light on my shoulder. I pushed it away. I told her to get her things and leave. I was slumped on the couch, naked but for my briefs and socks, my bowed head between my hands, half seeing Pam throw on her clothes, half hearing her curse me. Before she was out the door, I'd started crying, wailing like a baby, and even then I knew the life I grieved was my own. Where was the elementary school bookworm? Where was the high school honor student? What had happened to my love of reading? I was a drug addict, high at that very moment on the coke of a dead friend. I cried until I couldn't cry anymore, and then I rose with a plate of coke and paced the room. I stopped at the window. Outside, the snow fell steadily, making its haphazard descent to the street 16 floors below, and I imagined how it would scatter in my wake as I tumbled through it. This vision replayed in my head as I snorted another line. Then I opened the window. Rather than cold air rushing in, I could feel the warm air rushing out, coaxing me, showing me the way. Several minutes passed before I extended the plate over the sill. Twenty-five years later, tossing the drug to the wind is still the second most difficult thing I've ever done. The most difficult thing is still that I didn't follow it. But in a way I did. I withdrew from everyone, so thoroughly isolating myself that the body at Greg's funeral might well have been my own. I refused all social invitations. I accepted no visitors. I wouldn't even speak to Tim. I left my apartment only to go to work and to the grocery store. For six months, my sole companions were telemarketers, smooth-talking men who stayed up with me all night giving counsel, telling me how to get my life together. I was assured from the deck of a yacht that I could make a million dollars selling real estate. I was told that I could regain vigor with the purchase of a juicer. Jinsu knives, I was promised, could make me happy. Sometimes I received counseling from a porn star. She wore red lingerie as she lay on a bed next to a telephone and behind a stuffed bear that she gently stroked. If I was lonely, she said, I needed simply to pick up the phone and call. One night I did. What's your name? she moaned. I started telling her, not realizing she was a recording until she interrupted me, not understanding that I was paying good money only to listen. But I wanted to talk too. I hung up and called someone else. I'm an alcoholic, I said. The woman who'd answered the hotline already knew. Yes, yes, she replied. Of course you are. Her voice was soothing and kind. I got the sense she cared about me. She asked me what prompted me to call. Your commercial, I told her. 
Now she wanted to know my drinking habits, examples of how liquor was affecting my life. I told her it made me do things I'd probably never do while sober, such as make this call. Have you been drinking? Yes. And then I added, but only beer. It was all I allowed myself, less and less as the weeks went by. People often call about drinking, she told me. She wanted me to come to a meeting. I said I would. She took my zip code and gave me the address of a substance abuse center not far from where I lived. So you'll be there Saturday at nine, Mr. Jenkins? Bobby Jenkins was the name I'd given her. Sure, I said. I'll be there Saturday. But I did not go. I did not go to the AIDS meeting either. Don't die alone, that counselor had pleaded with me, a passionate man who seemed close to sobbing. We can help you. You must want help, he reasoned, or you wouldn't have called. True, I said. How long have you been infected? I'm not sure that I am. Have you been tested? No. Have you had unprotected sex with an infected partner? No. Are you an intravenous drug user? No. He hung up. I bought a Bible. I read from it every morning from four to five o'clock with a televangelist who spoke calmly and reasonably from behind a desk. I ordered the book he'd written, which contained the ten keys to life and the afterlife, five keys on each side. During the month or so he counseled me, the childhood memories of going to church every week with my family made me unbearably nostalgic. After one of my sessions with the reverend, I called home. My mother answered. It was the first time I'd heard her voice in two years. She didn't seem to mind that it wasn't yet dawn. I think I'd like to go to church with you and Daddy this Saturday, I said. But they had stopped going. I was shocked by this news because they'd always been strict believers, or maybe, it occurred to me, they'd only been strict church attendees. It was just as well, though, because I didn't really want to go back to church. I wanted to go back in time. I kept calling my parents, sometimes several times a week. I decided to contact my two sisters as well, both of whom had been horrified by the lifestyle I'd chosen seven years earlier. They were surprised to hear from me, even more surprised when I invited them to my apartment for dinner. Next, I invited my brother Tommy to watch a Bears game. During each of these gatherings, my brother and sisters counseled me too, just like the telemarketers, and I listened with an open mind about the armed services, the field of computer repair, the money to be made as a stockbroker. Someone mentioned yoga, and I was immediately attracted to what it promised, spirituality without God, sanctity without religion a stress-free existence. I found a yoga instructor in the Yellow Pages. The woman who answered the phone mentioned some of the masters she'd learned from, people with multi-syllabic names that began with the letter K. There was a class the next morning, she told me, if I was interested. I said I was. She told me to wear comfortable clothing and that payment, $50 for the first three sessions, should be in cash. Before we hung up, she asked me my name. Jenkins, I said. Bobby Jenkins. At nine the next morning, I wandered around the neighborhood of Hyde Park, feeling half-tourist, half-prowler among the million-dollar homes. I'd been to Hyde Park before. A friend had moved to the area with his family when we were teens. 
but never to this part of town. This was near the University of Chicago, and as I continued walking, some of the campus's majestic Gothic buildings came into view, looking not unlike the Emerald City. People my age rode toward the campus on bicycles or marched on foot hauling large backpacks. It was autumn, the start of the semester I could only assume because I knew nothing about college. I continued looking for my yogi. I found her house at last, a three-story Queen Anne with a bright yellow door. I rapped the lion-headed knocker five quick times. A man probably in his twenties answered. He wore a long beard and his hair was twisted in a white version of dreadlocks, the ends held together by colorful rubber bands. I'm looking for... I glanced down at the paper in my hand. Miss Friend. Sure, he said. Follow me. I noticed a vague hint of marijuana in the air as I was led through the parlor to a narrow flight of stairs. The surrounding walls were covered in rich burgundy wallpaper that I couldn't resist touching. It felt like crushed velvet, some of it worn thin from a century's trace of curious hands. At the landing, we made a right and passed several closed doors, finally stopping at the end of the hall, near a pedestal holding a hookah. The man stepped to the side and motioned to a room on his right. The door was slightly ajar. I opened it and walked inside. It was bare, except for a mat in the center of the floor, pictures on the wall of elderly dark-skinned men in loincloths, and, in a chair by a window, a morbidly obese woman. I turned to look at the man who discorded me, but he was gone. I looked back at the woman. She furrowed her brow and glanced upward as her arms slowly rose from her sides, Moses in a white mumu before the Red Sea. Please remove your shoes, Mr. Jenkins, she said, and let us begin. For the next hour, she talked me through a number of poses, telling me their names and explaining what they would do to improve my flexibility and worldview. She never left her chair, and I never left her instruction. I would wonder about that for a long time afterward, concluding only that nearly a decade of drug and alcohol abuse had so destroyed my self-esteem that learning yoga from an overweight woman in a chair did not anger me. <laughs> but I did have enough self-esteem left to know, even as I was paying her the $50, that I would not return for the next two sessions. I walked away from her house feeling duped and as confused about what to do with my life as ever. The next six months brought no more clarity, but they did bring books. I had joined the Book of the Month Club, and now my companions were the authors who regularly arrived at my door. I read constantly and indiscriminately, sometimes all through the night and always on the trains going to and from the medical center. And I read there, too, since I worked the second shift, 3 p.m. to midnight, and there was never much to do. I generally kept to myself, but suddenly I was an object of attention and curiosity. Not many uniclerks spent their downtime reading, and if they did, it was the National Enquirer rather than Mayday, Eisenhower, Khrushchev, and the U-2 affair. There seemed to be a consensus among my colleagues that I should be in school. I deflected questions about college by saying I couldn't afford it or that I was saving money in order to go. But the truth was that the thought of going terrified me, not because I might fail, but because I might succeed. I had made a life for myself within the urban underclass, and even though that life was filled with boundaries and constraints, there was a certain comfort there 
there was no comfort in allowing myself to be free. But now comfort of any sort was increasingly hard to find. I hated my job. I hated the thought of always having it. And I hated myself when the train I rode to and from work pulled into the Halsett Street Station, home of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Twice a day I would look up from a book and watch people of all ages enter and exit the double doors with backpacks bearing the school's logo. I would glance over the expressway toward the university's buildings, sometimes imagining myself in one of them taking a class. I did this without fail until at last, when the vision of myself as a college student no longer struck me as absurd. I stood when the students around me stood and moved with them toward the double doors. I half expected someone to stop me. We exited the train and walked as a group up the platform stairs before turning right and heading for the campus. The traffic light in front of us flashed from green to yellow. I found myself sprinting with the others to make it across the street in time. It was there that the group, maybe 20 of us, began to disperse. I picked someone to follow, a woman in a red parka. She led me straight to the library, an imposing concrete structure with narrow windows. I hesitated before entering, but only for a second. The woman in the parka stopped at the circulation desk. I found an empty seat at a table and opened my book. For the next few minutes I sat there pretending to read. I feared that at any moment someone would instantly spot me and know that I was not one of them, that I did not belong. I stayed only ten minutes before my paranoia forced me to leave. I went back the next day and, emboldened by the previous day's success, stayed for a full hour. I went twice more the following week and then going to the campus became my morning routine. One day I stopped at the campus door, bought a backpack with the school logo, and filled it with my accumulated book club selections. I ate lunch in the cafeteria. I bought a sweatshirt that said UIC Flames and wore it while I sat in the library pretending to study. For two months I was an imposter, an infiltrator in a forbidden land, until I managed to convince myself that this land was mine as much my right as any others. An admissions counselor disagreed. You'll never be accepted here, he told me. I was in his office, or rather at his desk in a large room full of other desks, counselors, and prospective students. He'd just finished reviewing my application, having lowered it from his puzzled face to confirm with me that I was indeed 22 years old, had received felling grades in high school, and had dropped out at age 16. While he slowly shook his head, I glanced around the room. Young people were everywhere, smiles on some of their faces, their futures spread before them like red carpets. I looked back at the counselor. He handed me my application. When he apologized and wished me well, there was genuine pity in his voice, just as there had been in the voices of my high school teachers and my parents when they saw me going down, caught in the urban undertow. And now I smiled because I knew there was no need to be pitied anymore. I had resurfaced, after all. I had survived. I had a backpack full of books. I had toured a college campus and even read in its library. And I knew that, somewhere, there had to be a place like this for a person like me. I would like to read um, very small chapters, very short, it's about two or three pages. Um, and it ties into the title of the book, which is Street Shadows. And I titled it that because 
Although I moved from the streets, those streets remain with me, and they creep up on a pretty regular basis. And it's not uncommon for me to find myself in an environment that's far removed from the streets, and yet those streets will sort of echo back uh, and remind me of something and warn me of things, and sometimes um, they can help me in very positive ways. Uh, This chapter is from when I am an academic, and you can see how it ties into uh, my background. It's called Bait. Ned was a classicist from the backwoods of Mississippi. He always dressed very casually, fashionably poor, I think it's called, with ripped jeans and open-toed sandals, T-shirts frayed and unraveling at the sleeves. This was his exact outfit that October of 2002, merely a month into my academic career, when he poked his head into my office and said, we shouldn't have hired you. I offered him a chair. No thanks, he said, stepping inside. He glanced at his watch and spoke quickly. You clearly want the most qualified of the candidates for the position. So then tell me, Ned, I asked, why was I hired? Well, your wife teaches here, and because of another obvious reason. He did not state the obvious reason, but it was fair to assume he was referring to my race. The minority faculty at the college numbered somewhere around 1%. I was the only black person in our department. I was, in fact, only the second black person my department had ever hired in its 165-year history. I may also have been the most qualified candidate for the position, but as long as affirmative action exists, whether or not it's actually applied, best is a distinction that blacks will rarely be allowed to claim. Anyway, he went on, the whole department knows you shouldn't have been hired. I'm just the only person honest enough to tell you. That's also why I'm the only person who didn't vote for you. Well, I responded, I can't say that I blame you. He raised his eyebrows. You agree that you aren't qualified? No, I said, but I do agree that there might have been better fits. Really? Sure, the ad expressed a preference for an Americanist. I'm an interdisciplinarian. I leaned forward and whispered, I may not have voted for me either. I sat back, loosening the knot of my tie. Nevertheless, I'm here now, so we both may as well make the best of it. Besides, my students seem to enjoy my classes. Yeah, I've heard, he responded. We share some of the same kids. They, they like you. They think you're great, actually. Which, I said, raises an interesting question. Knowing what you know now, that I'm not an awful teacher, and that I do seem to have a handle on the material, if you could do it all over again, would you vote for me? No. He snickered and looked at his watch before disappearing into the hall. I was left with a mixture of confusion and anger, with anger gaining ground. I couldn't imagine what would motivate him to initiate such an exchange, particularly when a likely response from me would be a loss of temper. Now my conspiratorial mind was beginning to reel, and it didn't take me long to conclude that perhaps his intention all along had been to provoke me to some foolish response. It was the oldest trick in the book, one that I had fallen for often. One incident in particular came to mind. It was 1980, and I was 16, crying, and in the back of a squad car. The cop sitting next to me was large, white, and male, standard for black ghettos at the time, and it is a peculiar trick of memory that I see him now with Ned's face. You piece of shit, he was yelling. I could break your fucking neck. 
It was a wonder he hadn't already. His hand was so tight on my throat that I could barely breathe. The nose of his revolver was pressed against my ribs. We were parked behind the police station, as reasonable a place as any for my murder. The officer, no doubt, would have claimed I had made an attempt for his gun when, in actuality, I had only insulted his mother. <laughs> we had just arrived at the police station when it, when it occurred. I was sitting next to my best friend, Steve, who, like me, had been arrested for drinking in public and for truancy. It was 10 a.m. on a Monday. We should have been in school, but school was of little interest to me in those days. I had dedicated my life to the pursuit of trouble. I found it that morning in the company of winos. Steve and I stood with them in an alley, huddled in the shade of tenement stairs as we shared lies and a quart of wild Irish rose. The police arrived out of nowhere. Everyone was searched, but only Steve and I were handcuffed. We watched the officers empty the bottle onto the curb before walking us to the car. Behind us, I could hear the winos complaining. So, an officer began, were you two niggers drinking watermelon wine? And that was what started it all. I do not recall which cop said it, only that the other one laughed and responded in kind. They went back and forth, raising the ante at mine Steve's expense, and this was our entertainment during the entire 15-minute ride to the station. Only I had found it less and less amusing, so that, by the time we arrived, my anger was out of control. When one of the officers grabbed my arm and pulled me from the car, I looked him square in the eyes. Your mother, I said, is a whore. His face flashed red. He removed my handcuffs, pushed me back into the car, got in with me, and closed the door. It was not until he reached for his revolver that I understood what was happening. And this is what saved me, Steve pounding his fist on the hood of the car, screaming like he was insane. The other cop grabbed his arms, trying to corral him, but Steve was too strong and kept breaking free. I could hear him yelling, he didn't mean it, he didn't mean it, and I wanted to join in, but I was being choked and starting to cry. Police began to converge from all directions, nightsticks in hand, and while Steve was being clubbed into submission, the officer rammed his revolver into my gut before putting it away. It is a vivid memory, it's less than clear, and yet I find myself frequently that 16-year-old again, risking so much with so little to gain. I was lucky that day in the parking lot, and I was lucky that day in my office that I did not take my colleague's bait. But the temptation was there, and that is what worries me. I have to be careful. I have to be smart. Steve can't save me now. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.